Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. From NBI Studios. This is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Rock. With all the talk about the business card and the DNA, what things were important to the lead investigator and what things were overlooked, Discussions about point of origin, an area of disturbance, and a whole. It's time today that we take a detailed look at how this investigation was conducted, in the words of the lead investigator himself. This is Season 12, Episode 40, LeClaire's Testimony, Part 1. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Gary LeClaire's testimony is 170 pages long, and he was recalled again later in the trial. I made it through 127 pages this week before I had to stop and write this episode. What we're going to be covering today is all of direct examination, all of John Dolan's cross-examination, and about half of Jeff Moore's cross-examination. To refresh your memories, John Dolan was Christian's attorney, and Jeff Moore was Robert's attorney. Something occurred to me when I was reading through this testimony, and that's that Gary LeClaire isn't responsible for Robert and Christian's arrest and convictions. LeClaire worked as lead investigator on the case for three years before leaving the Central Homicide Unit. And after three years of investigating, he never requested a warrant for Robert and Christian's arrest. He never believed there was enough evidence to charge them. It wasn't until five years after he left the unit that a different team of cold case investigators went after the two men who have been convicted. I suppose I've always known that, but the relevance of it was lost on me until now. He's the one that supposedly found the business card. He's the one that got the DNA results. He checked the phone records. He interviewed dozens of people. And he wasn't convinced that Robert and Christian were the perpetrators. And what you'll see in his testimony is that while he definitely has a selective memory at times and tends to not recall things that might not be so great for the state's case, he also doesn't at all seem like he's sold on the idea that Becky's body was moved in that wheelbarrow. LeClaire has no problem admitting that he has no idea when those tracks were made, when the footprints were made, 
when the card got to the desert, when the hole was dug out there, etc. He himself describes the idea of the wheelbarrow being used to transport Becky's body as just a theory. The truth is, and I think you'll all agree when we go through his testimony, that LeClaire did a shitty job investigating this case, and even though he knew that it was Christian's DNA on that business card back in 2007, he never thought that was enough. He never believed that he had solved the case. Let's get started with direct examination. The first 127 pages of this transcript are up on the website, and I've also included most of the exhibits that are discussed here for reference. At the time of the murders, Gary LeClaire had been working in the homicide unit for just over three years. In this case, in particular, he was initially assigned as an assisting investigator. Jeff Bumpensero was originally the lead, but was eventually taken off the case because of conflict of interest. That's not explained here in the testimony, but the reason was because of his relationship to Ron Friedley. Bump had been good friends with the father of one of the victims, who at least initially was a person of interest. So within about a week, Bump and Sarah was taken off of the case, and LeClaire stepped in as the lead investigator. LeClaire arrived on the scene around 2 a.m. on Monday, September 18th. When he got there, he was briefed by deputies who were already on the scene, deputies Keener and Osterloh. Crime scene investigator Ben Ramirez was also part of that initial briefing. Now, the purpose of LeClaire's testimony is to establish the business card as evidence in the case. So that's what most of his testimony is about. The prosecutor is going to walk him through, step by step, how he came to find himself out in the desert when he found the business card. And what we find out is that the process of that discovery is just as much of a cluster as we had earlier surmised. Little to nothing was done right in this initial phase of the investigation. During the briefing, LeClaire was told about the tire tracks leading out to the desert, as well as, of course, the discovery of Becky's body in the wheelbarrow, which was still there at that point. By that point in time, some firefighters had already followed the tracks as far as they could, looking for additional victims. The firefighters told the deputies on the scene, and by the time this briefing occurred, for sure Osterloh and Ramirez had already followed the tracks out as well. But since it was still dark out, LeClaire says that he decided to wait until the sun came up before walking the track himself to look for evidence. From this point in the testimony, and I'm on page 6 right now if you want to follow along, LeClaire begins to describe each location that he marked in his hand-drawn map, the five placards where footprints were found along the way. So we're starting at the wheelbarrow and working our way all the way back into the desert to the termination point of the track, or what they call the point of origin of the track. The first thing he talks about, and the first red flag in regards to these tracks being connected to the crime, is placard A. Placard A is approximately 25 feet away from the wheelbarrow itself. This is the beginning of the wheelbarrow tire track, and this is a big problem. The ground around the wheelbarrow, between it and the start of the track, appears to be soft, loose soil, ground that should easily be able to hold a track. At the beginning of our investigation, I was under the impression that the track was followed from the wheelbarrow to the point of origin, but that's not true at all. The track doesn't actually connect to the wheelbarrow. It doesn't even come close. There's a 25-foot gap between the barrow itself and the first sign of a tire track. And LeClaire offers no explanation as to how that could be possible. Here's another problem with the track at Placard A. It's the beginning of the track, 
It's located, by LeClaire's estimation, 25 feet west of the wheelbarrow. But the track is running north and south. To refresh your memory, the wheelbarrow itself is in a north-south orientation, meaning the handles are facing north and the wheel is facing to the south. What's strange about this is that we have a track that runs north and south that stops at Placard A. And then, 25 feet east of that, we have a wheelbarrow facing north and south with nothing connecting the two. The point being that not only is there nothing connecting one to the other, there isn't even an indication that they were at one point connected. Meaning, it's not like we see tracks headed to the east, they stop, and then there's the wheelbarrow pointed east further up the line. If that was the case, you could imagine how they would connect. But the way this is laid out would be like if someone was pushing the wheelbarrow to the south, then stopped, picked it up, and sidestepped to the left for 25 feet without leaving a single footprint, and then set it back down, facing the same direction. So right off the bat, we have a big problem trying to connect the final resting place of the wheelbarrow to the tracks leading out into the desert. It's clear that the wheelbarrow was out there at some point in time because of the tire tracks, but it is definitely not apparent that it came from there a few hours earlier and ended up where it was found. At Placard A, we see a shoe print over the top of the tire track, but also in this picture, we see at least one boot print, not on the track, but close to it. Aki asks Eclair if he did anything to determine who the boot track belonged to. And Leclerc says that he had every firefighter and police officer on the scene kneel down on the ground so that he could take photos of the bottoms of their boots, which was smart. But what was dumb is that we find out in the next question that he never bothered to compare the photos to any of the boot prints that he photographed. He assumed that that's who they belonged to, but if you look closely at the photos, you'll notice that some of the boot prints look fresh and some look not so fresh, like they'd been there for a while and he never took the step to see if those prints matched any of the first responders. Leclerc goes on to describe the next four places where he found footprints on or near the track. First of all, he makes clear that it wasn't a constant track. says there were places where it was visible and then stretches where it wasn't. Again, like it had been there for a while and the wind had blown parts of it away over time. The state doesn't offer a picture for Placard B, but Leclerc explains that he found the second footprint at that location. And Placard B, he estimates, is about 40 yards or 120 feet north of the wheelbarrow. He was able to determine that the shoe impression at Placard B came from a DVS brand shoe, and he says it appears to be the same shoe that made the impression at Placard A. One thing that I find really irritating about Leclerc's testimony is that when he's walking through this process on direct examination, It's very clear that he took those photos and placed those placards at the spots where he found shoe prints. He talks about the gaps with nothing, no tracks or shoe prints, but then later in cross-examination, he'll claim that there were many other prints, but he just decided not to take pictures of them. But the way he words his responses, there's some ambiguity even there. He doesn't really say that there were lots of bands and DVS prints in the sand, just that there were prints in the sand that he didn't photograph. And remember, in his report that was written months after the fact, he wrote that it would be, quote, futile to take pictures of every footprint. Now, at first, I just thought he was lying, to be honest with you. I mean, no investigator in their right mind would ever believe that he thought he was on the trail of the killers 
and only took two photos of one brand of shoe and three of another. He would have photoed and probably videoed the entire trail. But then I reread what his report said and what he's explaining at trial. I think that he's being honest. There were lots of tracks, and he didn't take pictures of all of them. I think that's true. In fact, I know that's true. But he's not talking about the sneaker tracks. He's talking about the tracks that were made by the boots. A half a dozen people or more had walked back and forth along that trail that night. We can see in the video taken a couple days later that there are boot tracks absolutely everywhere. Those are the tracks he didn't photograph. He had already assumed that those belonged to the first responders, and there were so many of them that he deemed it a waste of time. My belief is, and what we actually have in evidence, is that he took pictures of all of the footprints that he thought might have been connected to the crime, the ones that were on or near the wheelbarrow tracks, and there were five of them. Six, if you count the partial globe print, the one that was attributed to Becky's shoe. Moving on to placard C, this is where LeClaire found the first print that clearly says Vans across it. He notes in his testimony that the prints at A and B both came from a DVS brand shoe, and those were found 25 feet from the wheelbarrow and then 40 yards from the wheelbarrow. And according to his estimate, there was another 80 yards between the footprint that he found at placard B, the second one, and the next one that he found at C, the third one. He says that the footprint at placard C was about 120 yards away from the wheelbarrow. Just think about that for a minute. Supposedly, two people were pushing this wheelbarrow with a body in it just hours before, and yet they managed to do so for nearly the length of a football field in the desert, in the sand, and not leave a single footprint for 80 yards. I don't believe that's true, and I don't think LeClaire believed it either. There's literally no indication in his records that he was confident at all that this track was actually connected to the crime. He didn't even send the business card for DNA testing until July of the next year. And even then, when the results came back to match Christian, he did nothing with that information. He served a search warrant on their house where they found nothing, and that was it. So up to this point, we have a DVS print at 25 feet, another one at 40 yards, and then a Vans print at 120 yards. Next, we move to placard D, that's another 20 yards away or so. He estimates it at 140 yards from the wheelbarrow. This is where we have another Vans print, or what appears to be a print from a Vans shoe. Then another 20 yards, and we come to placard E. And this is where all human activity stops. The tire tracks stop here, and he found another Vans print, and this is where we see the partial globe print, the one that was shown to match the make and model, at least, of the shoe that Becky was wearing. And that's it. That is the origination point, which LeClaire estimates was 160 yards away from Becky's body that he got to following a track that doesn't connect to the wheelbarrow. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. 
That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Now, 160 yards is a long way, especially in that terrain. As I mentioned a few weeks ago, Janet and I were able to find this location using video and photos from the case file. And using my GPS, I was able to figure out that LeClaire was way off in his estimate. It was not 160 yards back into the desert. It was 320 yards back. And I just can't stress to you enough how far away that is from the crime scene. In Deputy Osterloh's testimony, which you're going to hear some of next week, He estimated that it was about a half of a mile away, which would be over 800 yards. Obviously, he's wrong about that, too, but it should give you a pretty good impression about how far away it feels. He looked at that distance and figured that they were about a half a mile away. The bottom line is, it is way, way back there. And very particularly, it's exactly 320 yards back there. The reason that LeClaire had to estimate, according to his testimony was not due to his own incompetence. It was due to the incompetence of Deputy Barrow, the tech that was out there with him that day, at least according to LeClaire. He says that he instructed her to document GPS locations of all the placards. That's why he didn't put much effort into his estimates. He thought he would have an accurate record. He says that he had what he calls the GPS machine out there with her, and he told her to log the locations of each placard, and he assumed that she had done so. And to be clear, in his defense, LeClaire's estimates are just that. They're just estimates. He testifies that he didn't even pace off the trail to try to get, like, an educated guess. He literally just guessed. He found out way later that Barrow never put the GPS data into a report, and by the time LeClaire found out, she was no longer employed with the department, and the data was lost. And that's why all we have is this hand-drawn, estimated map. From here, LeClaire goes on to explain how he found the business card. And this is also where I realized that it wasn't LeClaire who changed the point of origin to area of disturbance, a trial. In my mind, I've always, and now I see wrongly, blamed him for the kind of revisionist history. Remember way back at the beginning of the season, I said Ben Ramirez and LeClaire described it as a point of origin, but a trial it became the area of disturbance. Well, LeClaire is very clear in his testimony. After the track stopped at Placard E, he started looking around the area. He says there was kind of a big bush a little ways north of E, which kind of created uh, the look of like a forked path that went on either side of the bush. It's not really a path. The entire desert out there is like this. There's no underbrush, so you have clumps of creosote bushes, cacti, and pinyon pines. And where there's none of that vegetation, the ground is just sand, like a path, or a washout where the water had washed through. He says that he first went to the right of the bush and kind of hit a dead end about 15 feet in. Now, you'll see that in the map if you're looking at the photos on our website, where you see kind of a forked path and then 15 foot. He makes clear in his testimony that that was not a path of footprints. That was not a path of the tire track. 
It was not even a path. It was just an area where the dirt opened up that he followed that direction, went 15 feet, hit a wall of bushes, and came back. So then he goes back to Placard E and took what looked like the path that kind of went to the left of the bush. He walked along that path for about 20 yards until he came to an open area, and this is where he saw a hole. In that moment, when he saw it, using his notes, he wrote on the map in his notebook, quote, hole. And just beyond the hole is where he found the business card. In his testimony, he described the area around the hole as disturbed earth, like someone had been digging there. But he makes very clear there was no wheelbarrow tire track or any footprints between placard E, the hole, or the business card. The point of origin of the tire tracks in the hole or disturbed area are two very different things connected by nothing. And to LeClaire's credit, he never claimed otherwise. It was the prosecution that used a bit of sleight of hand in their closing arguments to connect the two. That's where all the confusion came from. A key in his closing conflates Becky's shoe print at Placard E, the area of disturbance, and the business card all together as though they were all the same place. He says that you can see the globe print here, and right over here is the area where a struggle took place, which, by the way, LeClaire never said a struggle took place there or that it looked like a struggle took place. But that's what a key said. But then he says, and right here in the same picture is the business card. So the way he presented it, he made it sound as though all three of those things were the same thing. But the point of origin, the area of disturbance, and the business card were all, boom, right there in the same place. That the point of origin and the area of disturbance were, in fact, the same place, when in reality, they were two very different places, separated by quite a distance, with nothing connecting one to the other. Now, LeClaire, he testified that not only was that business card found nowhere near the termination point of the tracks and prints, but there was nothing to indicate that a struggle took place at all. And again, that's critically important. LeClaire never once said it looked like a struggle took place. In fact, he very specifically said it looked like someone had dug a hole and filled it back in. Not only was there no area of disturbance at the end of the tracks, there was never an area of disturbance at all. There was only a hole. That concludes direct examination. Now I'm going to move on to John Dolan's cross-examination on behalf of Christian. Remember I told you last week that Dolan was constantly chipping away at that 38-minute drive test time. In fact, he was able to get two of the officers that testified in last week's episode that it takes them about 40 minutes to drive from the Palm Desert Police Station up to the crime scene. The Palm Desert Station is located right at the bottom of the hill, about halfway between the crime scene and Christian's house. Well, Dolan begins with LeClaire by putting up a map that caused Aki and Smith to lose their minds. Dolan put up on the overhead for LeClaire and the jurors to see a map. His official purpose for the map was to have LeClaire explain to the jury how long it took him to drive from the Palm Desert Station to Christian's house when he interviewed him, which was obviously a complete farce. That didn't matter at all, but this is why he did it. The map he put up there just happened to be a Google map where he had routed directions from the crime scene to Christian's house. So even though that's not what he was talking about, the jury was staring at a map 
with a route laid out exactly where Robert and Christian would have had to have driven, the exact route that Bodmer took on his drive test, and next to the route is a bubble that says 27.8 miles, 52 minutes. It was a dirty trick, but a pretty clever one. And by the way, if you're thinking, how can Bob say that's clever when he shits on the prosecution for doing their dirty tricks? Well, that's easy. Because Dolan was using cleverness and trickery to put true and factual information in front of the jury. That is not the same thing as misrepresenting evidence and intentionally misleading and lying to the jury. Those tricks I don't like. Dolan's tricks I like. Ultimately, Dolan is able to get what he was looking for. Leclerc drew out the route that he would take from the station to Christian's house and says it would take him 25 minutes to make that drive. The 52-minute Google ETA, well, that was just a nice little bonus. But so far, Dolan has on the record that it takes 25 minutes to get from Christian's house to the bottom of the hill and 40 minutes to get from the bottom of the hill up to the crime scene, while Bodmer is saying it took him 38 minutes to make the whole drive. Dolan moves on to asking specific questions about the trail of the tracks. And this is where LeClaire does irritate me a bit. Dolan is asking at each of the placards where the second shoe is. He says, here at placard A, we see the left shoe print. Where's the right shoe print? And LeClaire says there was no other print there to photograph. And here's where Dolan points out that there were no prints in the 40 yards between A and B. And LeClaire says, yes, there were. Dolan asks where the photos are of those prints. And he says he didn't take any pictures of them. And specifically, when looking at one photo that's kind of facing north from A, you can see there is some kind of an impression in the sand that is another print. And LeClaire draws attention to it. He says, I see another print right there. But that print, again, looks like one of the boot prints. And again, LeClaire's not specific about what kind of prints they were. In fact, like I said, he was quite clear during direct that the reason he took a picture at B was because it was the same brand shoe print as he found at A, the DVS. He also says that the first van track that he found was at C, 80 yards away. When you read what he's saying, he's making it pretty clear that he took pictures of all the DVS and van's footprints that he found. As Dolan moves on, he has LeClaire explain how someone pushes a wheelbarrow and then points out that you would expect to see a matching set of prints, one on each side of the tire track, rather than just one shoe on top of the track. This exchange takes place from page 76 to 79 of the transcript, if you're following along. And this is where I think LeClaire is just full of shit. He says there were spots where there were right and left prints next to each other, just like Dolan was describing. But he decided not to take pictures of them, which is bananas. Why on earth would he choose to only document two single footprints, partial footprints at that? if there were other places where he could clearly show both a left and right foot pushing the wheelbarrow? The answer is that he just wouldn't. I don't believe that he would. And that's why I wish Dolan had asked a follow-up question. Were those prints, the side-by-side ones, made by the Vans or the DVS shoes? And I bet that had he asked that question, the answer would have been neither one or I don't remember. Jumping to page 83, Dolan asks LeClaire about the area of disturbance, and LeClaire's pretty nonchalant about it. He says, quote, Just looked like there was a lot of activity made in that small area of dirt, end quote. He goes on to agree that it could have been digging, and it could have even been from an animal. 
Without getting into every little detail of rehashing the path from the wheelbarrow to Placard E, I'll just share that really the overarching theme of Dolan's Cross is this. LeClaire doesn't know and has never claimed to know when any of the tire tracks, footprints, the hole, or the business card were made or found their way out into the desert. Dolan asks him several questions about this and LeClaire answers all of them honestly. You don't know when that footprint got there, do you? You don't know when that tire track got there, do you? You don't know how long that business card was out there, do you? At one point, he even suggests that the tire track could have been there for a year, and LeClaire says that's possible. And he's not wrong. The desert is a really interesting ecosystem. I'm learning much more about it. I've started to do some research after talking to Janet's partner, Brandon, out on the scene. He was explaining to me an interview he did with an ecologist who explained all this to him. See, things don't change in the desert. Most of the bushes and trees out there look just the same today as they did in those photos taken 16 years ago. And if an impression is made in the earth during one of the rare times that the ground is wet, once it dries, something like a footprint could remain visible for years. And in some cases, decades or even centuries. Dolan's cross-examination ends with a bang. On page 93, he tries to get the fact in that in 2007, Robert and Christian were excluded from the fingerprint on the business card. And both Aki and Smith, the two prosecutors, came unglued. Dolan's trying to get his question out, and both prosecutors are objecting before he can even finish his sentences. Objection, misstates evidence, objection, hearsay, move to strike every time Dolan tries to ask a question. It ends up in a bench conference where the stipulations about the print are discussed, and then a reminder to the jury about the stipulation. And on that note, someone had asked last week when the stipulations came in. They came in at the beginning of the trial, way back at the beginning. And the state succeeded in this case in stopping the stipulation and the results of that comparison from being discussed in front of the jury. They were just quickly restated as stipulations, and they moved on. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Next up was Jeff Moore's cross-examination on behalf of Robert. Moore starts off by pointing out the inadequacies of the investigation. He has LeClaire explain that the reports in this case were written, in most cases, months after the fact. Then he asks about the handwritten notes that would be used for reference when those later reports were written. And here LeClaire claims that he only took two pages of notes. At least he starts off saying that. Those being the two pages where he drew the map of the wheelbarrow track and a second page where he drew pictures of the shoe prints. 
As Moore pushes a bit, he admits that he probably had other notes, but he's not sure. He says that he interviewed Javier out there that day, and he probably would have taken notes during that interview. It all seems very insincere to me, and frankly, I don't buy it. He wrote 53 reports in this case, and this wasn't the only case that he was working. But according to his testimony, those reports were all written mostly just from memory, and there's just no way that's true. What I'm about to share with you is anecdotal. I want to make sure that's clear. And I'm not saying this is what was done here, but I think it's worth sharing. Years ago, I was talking to a local detective here in Michigan about handwritten notes. This was way back. I believe we were talking about things that were found in the Anand Syed case. He told me that in his department, it's common practice for detectives to destroy their handwritten notes after they write their reports. That's not a policy, but it's a practice. He said they try to never keep them because if they do, the notes can become evidence at trial and he would have to go on the stand and explain why he wrote every little thing. He claimed that sometimes the notes are just things that would only make sense to him, but defense lawyers, or guys like me, he said, will try to make something out of nothing. We actually got into a pretty nasty argument about it. This guy's a personal friend of mine who I really respect. It was shocking to me that he would do such a thing. And I want to be clear that I have never heard from any other detective from any other agency that that's a common practice. So I really don't know if it is. But when I see stuff like this, I tend to believe it is. At the fire department, I spent 15 years taking notes and then transferring them into formal reports. I just can't imagine trying to do it from memory. It's just not possible. Especially when you're talking about 53 reports over the course of a couple years. And you're writing them months after the fact. Moore goes on to ask some questions about what LeClaire did to try to figure out how long the tracks had been there. He has to be checked to see what the wind conditions were at the crime scene. When was the last time it rained? What were the temperatures like? LeClaire testifies that he didn't do any of those things. Moore then asks, quote, Did you do anything to determine how long the tracks were there? End quote. And Claire just responds, No. During Moore's cross-examination, we find out that LeClaire did find out that Barrows didn't document the GPS locations of the footprints until after LeClaire was no longer with the homicide unit, which was over three years later. Then we get a really good look at just how concerned LeClaire was about Robert and Christian as suspects. Moore points out that on the 28th of September, when LeClaire interviewed Christian, he asked Christian's dad to excuse himself from the interview. In that interview, Christian told LeClaire everything that he was doing the night of the murders. The trip to the church, the paintballing, the video games, Robert's nap, interactions with his mom, the possibility of his aunt being home while he and Robert were there, the text from Robert's cousin about the chapstick, the trip to the AMPM to get the chapstick, going over to his girlfriend Jackie's after dropping Robert off that night. He told him all of that, and this is what LeClaire did to follow up. Or better yet, here's a list of things that he didn't do. He didn't interview Christian's mom, his dad, his aunt, Robert's cousin, or Jackie. He didn't go to the AMPM to verify the alibi. Later on, he sent a deputy to the AMPM, but then it was too late to get video surveillance evidence. And he didn't have the deputy ask for receipts from that night to see when someone came in and bought a chapstick. All of those things would have been very easy to do. He didn't do anything to follow up, which of course now looks like he just failed to do his job, which in a way he did. But to me, it just confirms what I've been saying all along. LeClaire didn't think Robert and Christian were viable suspects after their interviews. 
He was locked into Javier at that point, and he never bothered to clear Robert and Christian. They weren't really on his radar, which, as it turned out, is what took their lives away. If he had truly been objective and open-minded, he would have left no stone unturned, no loose ends. Had he went and talked to Marty immediately after Robert said he asked him to get the chapstick, like he did with Corey Donovan after Javier said he was with him, this all could have been cleared up on day one. It would have been a simple process. First, ask Robert in the interview room to show him the text from his cousin, then we'd know what time that was. Second, go to his cousin and verify not only the text, but also Robert returning to their grandmother's house and playing video games that night. And third, go to the AMPM and check the video surveillance. The fact of the matter is that Robert and Christian were left vulnerable to a wrongful conviction not because the cops were after them at the beginning. It was because the cops didn't think that they were involved. And because of that, LeClaire never verified their alibis. I'm going to end the transcript discussion today with a testimony that occurred on pages 125 to 127. Then I'm going to take a short break and come back and sum all this up. On these pages, LeClaire is describing the hole that he found 20 yards beyond the end of the tire tracks and footprints. First of all, he shares that he did walk around beyond the areas that are depicted on the map that he drew. He looked all over the area for evidence and other tracks, and he found none. And now the hole. And this is the part that really reveals what a red herring the wheelbarrow really is. He says that it looked like a hole had been dug and filled back in. Moore asked him if he made any attempt to excavate the hole, to see if there was evidence buried in there or something. And Leclerc says that he did. He testifies that he dug two feet down into the hole and found nothing. He also testifies that the ground in the hole was loose and easy to dig, which means he was exactly right. Something was indeed dug up there and the hole filled back in. Something that was at least two feet deep. Something like tree roots. The fact that the dirt was loose confirms that something was dug out of that hole. Out there in the desert, while there is a layer of loose sand over most of the ground, the substrate itself is compact and hard. It's not loose and it's not easy to dig in. And this was no animal hole. It's too big. Coyotes and mountain lions don't bury things two feet deep. This hole was made by a human. Whatever was dug out of that hole is probably what was carried back to the house in the wheelbarrow. After going through this testimony and examining all the exhibit photos that go along with it, I'm more convinced than ever that Becky's body was absolutely not moved in that wheelbarrow. To begin with, I believe that the tire tracks and footprints were made when the ground was wet. If you're looking through the photos on the website, take a look at the picture titled People's 140. That's the picture of the van's shoe print and the partial glow print found all the way out at Placard E, the last one, the point of origin. Look at the upper right of that photo. What do you notice? There's a deep, hard edge on the van's footprint that doesn't happen in dry terrain. That footprint was made in the mud. It was made when the ground was wet. Once the ground was dried out, the track was set, like putting a clay pot into a kiln. When this happens in the desert, that print will remain there until something comes around and rubs it out. 
It's not going to blow away like a track in the dry sand. And that's why the tracks are so spread out. And why we only see wheelbarrow tracks in one direction, and they're broken up. The wheelbarrow was taken out there in the desert to dig up a tree or a bush. It's obvious that's the case. And Leclerc even found the spot where it was dug up. Now take a look at People's 144. In this photo, you can clearly see the cut-off roots sticking out of the perimeter of the hole. There's not even a question. It's obvious what happened here. And everything looks to me like it was done the day after a big rain. What Janet and I noticed when we were out in that desert is that when it rains, the water creates shallow trenches as it flows to the south. That's what creates what looks like paths. Paths like what Leclerc followed around the tree out towards that hole. The tire tracks are broken up and the footprints are spaced out because the ground was wet. And when the wheelbarrow was pushed along the smoother high ground, it didn't leave any impressions. But when it dropped down into the washout trench areas, that's where all the loose soil was brought in by the rain. And it was resting there like wet clay when the wheelbarrow was pushed through it. Look at any one of the photos of the five locations where you can see tracks and you'll see indications that the tracks were made when the ground was wet. And it hadn't rained in pinyon pines for months at the time of the murders. Lastly, I want you to go onto the website and take a look at People's 121. If nothing else convinces you, not the absurdity of killing Becky 300 yards out in the desert and then going back out there to retrieve her body in a wheelbarrow at night, not the inexplicable decision to do that only to leave her body outside burning right where she could be seen by anyone. Not the fact that there are a total of only six documented footprints and over 300 yards of a trail. And if not the fact that there are only prints in a trail coming one direction. If none of that convinces you that the wheelbarrow was a red herring, take a look at People's 121. There's a lot going on in this picture. In the bottom left of the photo, we see the back half of the wheelbarrow and the handles. Directly above the wheelbarrow in the picture is placard A. That is the beginning of the track out to the desert. According to the state, Becky's body was pushed in the wheelbarrow from placard A that you see there to the final resting place where you see it in this photo, without making any impressions whatsoever on the ground. Now, if you look at the photo, you'll see that it's actually laughable to think that this is what happened. Look at the ground in between the two. It's all torn up loose soil. Vicky and John had obviously been doing some landscaping. In the middle of the photo is a transplanted tree. And it's easy to tell that's what it is because it's tied off with two green T-posts on either side of it. So you have to do that when you transplant trees because the roots haven't taken hold yet and a slight wind would knock it over. I'm telling you, take the time to look at this picture and really ask yourself if it's possible to have pushed the wheelbarrow with a body in it over that terrain and not leave so much as a dent in the ground. I've also included another photo in the case file for this week that wasn't used at trial, but was in the police file. It's a picture of the trampoline that was located just southeast of Becky, basically right behind the person taking the photo in People's 121. If you look at that picture, you'll see a great big hole dug right there. And it looks like maybe they were using the hole as a fire pit. But the point is that to dig that hole, the dirt had to go somewhere. And if you flip back to 121, you'll see where it went. 
The simple fact is this. The evidence that the wheelbarrow was not used to transport Becky's body is overwhelming, bordering on indisputable. And what we've learned today is that that was not just my opinion. There is no evidence whatsoever, even in his trial testimony, that Gary LeClaire ever believed that that's what happened either. NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Edited by Kelly Barron's Brink and sound engineered by Shane Yoder. All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. All of our fonts across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design, and you can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. And a big thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Kay Woodyomnik, Ginger Fiola, Erica Cantor, Danielle Rohr, Jennifer Ford, Courtney Wimberly, and Melissa Cardenas. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in several ways. To financially support the show, the best thing you can do is just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You'll not only be supporting the show, but you'll get something in return. On Patreon, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we have reward levels. For just $5 a month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes bonus video content every week. Then other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. Go to patreon.com slash truth and justice. You can also do us a huge favor by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the brands that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page on Facebook. And for all you tweeters out there, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. And I can be found personally on all forms of social media at BobRuffTruth. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, 
TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.